Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. So, Guy, Nick Mason's source full of secrets, of which we are um, two-fifths, right? Uh, we're going back out on the road in the summer across the UK. We are. We're, it's all of June, so brace yourself. What's it called? It's called the Set the Control Store. What a brilliant name. Who do you uh, think could have come up with such a great name for a tour, Gary? I wonder. I think yeah. I'm looking at him, right? But then right. I did come up with uh, Nick Mason's source full of secrets. You did, and in fact, that came up in a podcast then because you were inspired by Woody Woodman's Is You Boat, weren't you? I was, yes. Anyway, anyway, but enough of that. So... Join Nick, Guy, Lee Harris, uh, Don Beacon and me as we celebrate the early years with, you know, that incredible, it's an incredible body of work, isn't it? The early Pink Floyd. It goes up to just before Dark Side of the Moon. goes up to 1972, with all the film soundtracks, all the Sid stuff, stuff you've never yeah. heard, stuff that no one's ever Echoes, heard, frankly. Obviously. Echoes is the big sort of, you and, know, uh, uh, what is that? What would you call it? Magnum Opus. Yeah, I love a Magnum, don't you? Yeah, I never met Magnum. Was he, was he, <laughs> Um, anyway, tickets are on sale now and you can buy yours at uh, myticket.co.uk. And Kilimanjaro Live presents Nick Mason's Sourceful of Secrets, the Set the Control Tour. Uh, hello, mate. So it's your little brother. I know. I'm a bit nervous. Why? Is he, well, he, is he stronger than you? He used to punch me in the stomach when we were kids. You know, I, I was always crying and he was a bully. <laughs> <laughs> is it going to be like that great thing that Stuart Copeland said when he said, or when they had band therapy? He said, in all those years, I thought I've, nothing was hitting home, and all of it was. Yes. <laughs> Every blow was landed. Yeah, no, we'll bring up, I'll try and embarrass you, obviously. So this is, a, this is a sort of weird one. I've got my brother on. But I, you know, I think this could be really interesting because, you know, you know, just talking about the 70s growing up, you know, we've got so much to yeah, chat. No, I'm, 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 I'm very interested. I'm, I'm very interested as to what the dynamic is going to be. If you two oh, are going to gamble for me, me and Martin are going to gamble for you. I'm going to, I'm, what's, who's interviewing who? And it's, you know, or if it's, you know, we just go, oh, 80s. I mean, I what, you know? <laughs> well, well, listen, I mean, we've got a permanent residency in one of the courthouses in London. So, you know, we could easily get back <laughs> <laughs> Let's get him on. Yeah, it's like going to the walls, isn't it? Ah, oh, Mr. Kemp. Uh, yes, bench three. <laughs> Welcome to the Rock on Tours. Okay, guys, I'm ready. This was great, guys. I, I, it's so great to talk to two guys that have done this. Well, it's a big tune for sure. I actually wrote that originally for Tina Turner. Of course, I had gone and found Joni Mitchell down in Florida and brought her back. You know, what people forget about Bowie is that he was such a kind man. I've listened to a few of them and they've been really good, man. I'm sitting in the back of the car coming into London. They're brilliant. Remember me? I'm in a band now. <laughs> it's called Roxy Music. You know this thing about the 10,000 hours of experience? Oh, yeah, that's it. Get good at something. When we recorded Arnold Lane, we'd done about 50 hours. The Rock Hunters podcast with Gary Kemp and Guy Pratt. Hey, Mark. Hey, Gal. You all right? Hey, Guy. Hey, Mark. I'm good. You all right? Yeah. How many bass players have we had on this show now? We've had so many. We have quite, we've, it's funny, I've noticed we've had quite a lot of bass players because I've probably, and I'm sure Martin will agree with me here, is because they are just the most erudite and interesting people. That's right. Yeah, they talk a lot of sense, but but I did notice you had a lot of bass players. That's why I was thinking, what the fuck am I doing? <laughs> <laughs> you can ask me. Uh, you know, it's, uh, I, what, what, you my hundredth down the line? 
But, but let's not forget the greatest bass player. We're in the 40s, but we, we didn't want to be accused 40s? of... 40s? You waited till the 40s? We didn't want to be accused of nepotism. Yeah. Oh, listen, get, nepotism. get on your I'm own merit, it. Mark. <laughs> I'm all over nepotism. Mark, well, he certainly is. Mark, I just thought it would be, be good to have you on because, you know, everyone's heard me spouting about Spandau Ballet and about the 70s and blah, blah, blah. And I probably will on this show right now, yeah. uh, given the chance. But, um, but you know, to ha to, it was interesting just to see what your perspective on growing up and the, and, and everything, you know, is was for you and what it was like, you know, going, you know, having this older brother who was into music. Um, yeah, this is my the... line of questioning, Gary. You oh, I know. Brother. You know what I mean? I... Come on. <laughs> I mean, obviously, I've got to start with the most tired gag in the world, which is, so, Martin, when did you first meet Gary? <laughs> the first time, I remember, first time I remember Gary was probably when he was tormenting me as a small child. Is that true? Flicking elastic bands at each other across the No, but the this bedroom. is interesting, isn't it? Because both, I mean, probably both, because how, well, there's not, you know, there's, you're probably, both of you, nev never conscious of a world without the other one in it. No, absolutely. I mean, we've been really lucky because uh, not just, you know, listen, through life, but me and Gary have stayed friends. We've worked together. Uh, we've hung out together. Um, and we're still doing that now. And a lot of brothers don't get to do that. Some of the stuff that me and Gary have experienced in our life uh, are joint memories that um, we will both take to our graves with us. Uh, and it's the loveliest thing to be able to share that with my brother. It's Aww. the loveliest thing. Yeah. Although my earliest memory is trying to kill you, pouring sugar yeah, and treacle over your yeah. face and pushing your pram into the road and all of that sort of. But, it, but that is a very interesting point. Because like you said, I mean, yes, I mean, Rock and Roll Brothers are notoriously, you know, you've kind of ruined that story for everyone by just getting on so well. So, you know, fact. But, uh, but also what is interesting is that both of you coming from the same house and the same hint, that both of you went off and yes, you had the band and everything, but mm. then you both had all this other stuff as well. It, it was like, you were both destined for, you know, stuff. Well, Gary and I, Gary and I had a really lucky start in life, you know, because Gary must've told you across uh, over the years, you know, when uh, we grew up in Islington, in uh, Rutherfield Street, we had the biggest break of luck, I think, that uh, any kids could ever have. And that was Anna Scher's yeah. Children's Theatre opened up directly across the road from us. And I was, Gary would tell you, I was the shyest little boy in the world. You know, I, it was like an illness I had. If I, if I saw one of my best mates across the other side of the road, I would start sweating in case he saw me. You know, it was, Aww. I was terrible. Gary ended up going to Anna's first, and I think he was there for about six months before my mum thought it would be a great idea for me to go as well. So um, I ended up going and it got rid of my shyness. And to be honest, even today, I would say that half of my personality and the person who I am today comes from Anna Scher. And I don't know if, Gail, do you agree with that? Yeah, I mean, you were shy. I do remember that, you know, and, and she was really good at uh, bringing out confidence in people. I mean, mm. we, I went first and my our parents didn't even, didn't even know I was going. You know, they I just uh, I think I, I, I spent my paper round money 
getting into this club. And then the first time they knew I was going was when I said, w I've got a part on television. I think one of the earliest parts we did was with, with each other, you know, for, yeah. for Jack and Ori, BBC Jack and Ori. Oh, was I think that was the first what, part that we ever did. Did you have to be quite brave to do something as sort of arty as go to theatre school? Because I remember cause I, did, I did ballet lessons when I was at primary school and it was, you know, a nightmare having to go. Yeah. And, and then, and then you said, I've got to go for ballet now. And it was like, so, <laughs> but then you spent the rest of your life at the bar, right? <laughs> uh, no, I don't think we had to be brave. I think it was about, um, you know, in, in fact, there were, the, there were so many kids around Islington that were trying to get into Anna's shirts. And it was so difficult to get into because Anna's oh, shirt okay. was the only thing out there. So if you were in, in the school or in the club, as it was, it was only two nights a week, wasn't it, Gary? Tempio. 10 a lesson, two nights a week. It was a club. Yeah. So if you were in there, you were kind of classed as, as lucky, really. And, and as soon as, it wasn't long after me and Gary were going to Anna Schur's that we started getting small television parts. And if, like Gary said, the first part we ever did was Jack and Ori together. And I think as soon as you're on television, all the other kids around, you know, they just oh, knew. Yeah. Uh, listen, I'm, I'm on a part of that as well. By the time I was like 15, I was like, my CV was like 30 shows down. I was like uh, doing Comedy Playhouse and and uh, all of that stuff that was on during the 70s. Were you doing more than Gary then? Oh, loads more, loads. <laughs> I got... Was this an issue? <laughs> I got a royal premiere. All right. right. <laughs> so, because... Uh, I did yeah, a film. I. <laughs> I, I, I did a children's film foundation movie, which is the Saturday morning pictures things that, that we used to go and yeah. see in those days. They spent a lot of money on those films, and there's a great cast. I mean, in, I think in my one, it was like Roy Detrice, Alfred Marks, Liz Fraser, and <laughs> yeah. um, and uh, it got it was the 21st anniversary of the CFF, and it got a it got a, a royal premiere. So beat yeah. that, Mark. But no, he was he was I, on I, very. I worked with Vanessa Redgrave, uh, Lena oh, Rossiter. This is what uh, I'm here. For. This is what I'm here for. Come on, boys. Yeah, um, but 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 just those names, you know, you can see what Anna yeah. Scher did for me and Gary. You know, for me, it, it gave. Like I said, I, I honestly believe it gave, gave me half the personality that I have today. You had to do a scene, didn't you, where you you had to wee in it in the oh, showers man. or something? It, it, yeah, but it was the end of my acting life as a young boy. Right, because I'll tell you the scene. This was a show with Tom Conti, and it was a six part TV series called Glittering Prizes. Now, imagine I was this boy called Graham Black, who was great at football, but also uh, very academic, which is a lot of bollocks anyway, right? But I was very academic, and um, need to do so the end scene was all the boys on the football field have come into the shower, and like it's one of those big open football showers. You know, it's like about mm. 20 or 30 boys in there all naked. Now, I'm sitting on simpler the chair. Simpler times, simpler times. Yeah, yeah, it never happened nowadays. Yeah. But um, I'm sitting on a chair, and as I'm sitting on the chair, the camera is behind me, right, and it's pointing at my ass, right? And what the plan is, is I have to stand up, put my bum in it, you know, my ass into the front of the camera, and then go a wee over the kid sitting next to me. Now... I don't know if you've ever tried this, but you can never go away when somebody's watching. I'm bad enough going to, trying to go up here, seeing a pub. But hang on, hang on, Mark, Mark, hang on. Was, was this some kind of stunt kid that they'd got <laughs> yeah. in who accepted yes, being I, pissed I, over? 
Well, listen, this was an ordinary boy, ordinary boy, and he was waiting there to be pissed on. And it was it was awful. And so so anyway, you can't go pissed when someone's watching you, can you? No. So what they did in the end was they got one of the runners who must have been about 18, 19. Uh, she held a funnel and there was a pipe coming out of it. And uh, on action, she would, someone come up and poured orange juice down the funnel. So it came out, it looked like I was pissing on the kid sitting next to me. But listen, thank God I never, because he would be suing the shit out of me now. God, yeah. yeah. And also, God, also I suppose, you know, what, what's a shame about that is that when afterwards on your CV, when you've got horse riding, boxing, running, <laughs> sword fighting, you can't have pissing. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> But because did you not also have football in your? Oh, uh, yeah, but you know, but I thought that did you sort of train with Arsenal or something? There was some yes, sort of my, my training with Arsenal is kind of like as big as the fisherman's. Oh, it's one of those, yeah, okay. but but I do remember once I was I had a couple of weeks with Arsenal. My first day, I get there and they say, You okay, you're gonna go out on a run, a cross country run. Now, I hated running, I love playing football, but hated running. And uh, so I get halfway around and I think, oh, I've got to have a rest. So I'm going to go behind a bush and just have a rest. So as I go behind the bush... No, I can't. <laughs> there's Malcolm McDonald sitting there behind the what? bush, hiding behind the bush. He was no, the what? for Arsenal centre forward and he's hiding behind the bush and I bumped into him. And I'm looking at him and he's looking at me and we're going, oh, well. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Red-handed. just sat there. But that was my, uh, that was the highlight of my uh, Arsenal days well, you know that he already had the sort of flash pop star in him i you know he talks about all his shyness and that but when he was a footballer and he played for islington um yeah he 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 there were everyone only had black football boots in those days but martin took his football boots and he painted them sky blue and he lined them with fake fur i say i know it was fake because my mum was was a sort of seamstress and she had a lot of this fake fur on and he lined them with fake fur so they came out of the top of the you know where the socks were the worst thing about it was the first time i got a great shot on goal the boot came flying off in one direction <laughs> and all just went anywhere and did, did loads of loads of glitter come out of the boot as well. <laughs> <laughs> Party poppers went off and everything. Uh, I remember. I remember when um when you jump right, but when you announced the reformation of Spandau yeah. on HMS Belfast, and I was there because you, of course you had your child, you know the football dream. You 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 played for for the Rovers, didn't you? For for Melchester Rovers. Oh no, that was the, the maddest thing. But yeah. no, but I, a brilliant thing when you know Simon Mills, our mate, the rather yeah. witty journalist. He, one of the questions you have for you is said Singh and Span are getting back together. Is there is there a chance that you may be rejoining Melchester in a management <laughs> capacity? It was the maddest thing. Because we we need to explain what it is. We need to explain what Melchester Gary is. Gary and I were living in Roy the Rovers was a famous was in the what, what was it the Eagle? What was it in? No, no, no. It was, it was Roy the Rovers uh, comic. It was his own comic. No, but it, it started. I thought it was a strip in something else. No, Royal Rovers was its own comic. Oh, right? okay. around centuries. And um, so we, Gary and I were living in Dublin, probably about, what was it, girl? About 84? Dublin. 85. Yeah, 85. And um, so this guy who, who kind of like run the Royal Rovers comic, he approached me and said, would you like to play for Melchester Rovers? And I thought, what's he talking about? He was actually, he was like the manager of Melchester Rovers, which is Royal Rovers football team yeah. in the comic. But listen, it was a real honour. They put us in as a cartoon, right, until we actually got to the final of the FA Cup, which is every kid's dream. 
And we get to the final, and, and that weekend I remember clearly waiting for my comic to be delivered through through the hole in the door. And uh, as it drops in, I get it, open it up, get to the page where I'm, I'm meant to be in the final, and I've been dropped. <laughs> I, I was dropped because Spandau Ballet had a gig. That's what they said. Spandau had a gig. Yeah, that was I the beginning. Them up. So, a, but that's a great scene, isn't it? That's a classic comic scene of you facing off with Gary and Gary going, "It's the team or the band." Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 It's it's the team or the band. Yeah, it was um, the end of the band, really. Where, you know, when it got dropped for for uh, the band, it was just the uh, beginning of the end. Let's get to the band because the um because you well it's the makers, the gentry, the all those uh, because you you were the roadie, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I was a roadie. Yeah. Um, Gary, what's going on here, mate? Well, well, this is before the makers and the. Well, it, it okay, wasn't right. really. No, it was. It, well, you're right. No, you're right, guys. So sorry. No, it was that period. I mean, but you'd always been in my life, though, Mark, hadn't you? I mean, I couldn't get rid of you. You know, <laughs> it was like mum yeah. said. Mum said you had to do it. Yeah, because you know I was the second born, right? So it's always easier for the second child to come along because. You know, the older child has always opened up the doors for you, you know. So whatever was difficult for Gary, then my mum and dad were used to Gary going out to yeah. clubs or pubs or seeing bands. And so for me to come along, I could do it at a much younger age, you know. But um, I always used to try and tag along with Gary but until he was a certain age. And uh, he wouldn't let me... He wouldn't let me. He didn't want me to at first, you know. Oh, he he didn't, like didn't want his cool mates seeing you. Was it that? Yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah. Were you getting all your music information from him, Martin? Uh, yeah, kind of. Uh, Gary's was always until you until I think Gary was in the same band, and then the same band kind of blew me apart a little bit because that's was, a band called the same band. I was going to say, yeah. yeah. Yeah, it's a band. Gary's one of Gary's. I bet that sounded like a really good idea at the time, didn't it? It did. It must be a bit like a band called The Who. Yeah. Or The The. Well, it was. It was. You know, it was the band that Gary never admits to. That one. And so. Brilliant. Thanks, Martin. Thanks. This is what we're here for. Keep that coming. But until Gary got to that, you know, we we were always we we shared kind of musical taste, I suppose, with uh, going through all the glam thing together and buying our first singles together and going up to uh, Cross Street in in Islington to on the day uh, Gary forced me to spend my pocket money on a seven-inch single, you know, and... Um, yeah, because we bought our first singles together on the same day, didn't we? Well, I was going to say, because did, did you have a sort of musical awakening yourself, or was it just Gary had this, you just picked it all up, or, you know, you yeah. heard the stuff of Gary was this, and you went, wow, this I, is amazing. Yeah, I think it was came from Gary. I think uh, it was the posters from Gary. Be in with your brother. Don't, you know, yeah, yeah, I think you have to remember, you know, my life was all about um, Arsenal and Bruce Lee on posters on my wall, and Gary's was all about... Uh, David Bowie and Mark Boland on his wall. And so I used to wake up every morning and staring at them. So, uh, you know, uh, I was kind of forced, pressure, pressurised into it. But uh, Martin, do you remember the first single you bought? Yeah, yeah, it was Me and My Life, uh, The Tremolos, which I have no idea why I would have bought that record. No idea at all. <laughs> That's it. Yeah, because I, I bought Ape Man by the Kinks on the yeah, same day. I think I just wanted to be kind of grown up with you and uh, share the experience. And I can I, I remember going home with the tremolos and being completely disappointed. It was nothing <laughs> that I wanted. But it's funny. I remember I remember a lot of that when I was a kid. There's a thing because buying a record is such a big deal. 
Yeah. Right. It's such a big deal. And you have to make it and you can only buy one. Right. And then it's going to be four months before you can buy another one. And it becomes such a big deal. And you reckon you get so confused. You very often end up and, and you know what the music you love is. For some reason, that seems too obvious. And you very often just buy a record. You end up with something that you. <laughs> but also, <laughs> also, you become really attached to the B-sides, don't you? Because, you know, yeah. you can't, you've got to play the B-side as well to get your money's worth. <laughs> yeah, that's right. That's right. And that, that kind of uh, doesn't exist anymore, which is, uh, I think, is a real shame. But Martin, you know, you remember I the first albums that I had was were T-Rex and that. Uh, yeah. uh, what was, what what was did you think album? of his folky phase? His folky phase? Well, that's kind of when <laughs> I kind of, well, I think we went along, didn't we, Gary? And we got into Steel Ice Band together and we started to go into a few folk clubs and I kind of got into it, but it, yeah. it didn't excite me very much. And I think that's when I kind of lost touch with what Gary where Gary's musical taste was during the folk bit because Gary was a little bit older than me, so he was going to the real owl pubs and hanging out with mates with beards. He, all of a sudden, he became a lot older than me. Let's just go through those really hit albums. Yeah. The albums that meant stuff yeah. to you and to me and the gigs we went to in the 70s. Yeah. I, you know, remind me of some. Oh, man. I mean, for me, the first gig that I ever went to that I remember going to was on my own with a mate and we went to see Man at the Roundhouse and I think that was in 1974. Well I was um, there I might have been your mate. And then quickly after that I went to um, to see Steve Marriott with his oh. all-star band uh, at the Roundhouse but on both of those and get me and Gary talk about this a lot both of those times the thing that I remember most wasn't the bands it was Jesus Oh, of Jesus! Course. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Standing up in the middle of the roundhouse with his robes and uh, you know, uh, smelling of um, patchouli, patchouli oil. <laughs> it was all of that. The experience where people were watching man, but sitting down. They weren't standing yeah. up cheering like we see now. People were sitting on the floor, cross-legged in the roundhouse. Yeah, yeah Jesus was uh, this wonderful guy that used to be. At all, I don't know what his real name is, guy. Do you remember? I can't remember, but it went forever. But what's so fantastic about? Jesus, I mean, he was going until the nineties, wasn't he? And I think he ended up make, making a record with someone. But what's so fantastic he? about Jesus is that the gigs you're talking about, Martin, like at the roundhouse and all those sort of things. Yeah. But yeah, it's everyone's kind of it's all very hippieish and everything. And mm. he would absolutely be part of the furniture, right? And he completely made yeah. sense. But then, but then punk happened and everything. And it's yeah. like he didn't notice, and he was still at all those gigs. Yeah. And now he doesn't make any sense at all. There's this weird anomaly in the middle of the crowd. That's right. Like, yeah, he, he didn't make any sense. That, that, that's what was so brilliant. And he just went all the way yeah. through the eighties, through everything. No matter what, the death metal, anything. There's still yeah. this bloke. exactly. <laughs> we we went to see Martin. I must say, you know, the, the Rolling Stones, uh, yeah. uh, Earl's Court. You, you know, went to did, Charlton, we, didn't you? you we went to Charlton to yeah. see the Who. We went to Hammersmith Odeon to see the Who. Oh, I tell you Charlton. what, the Charlton, the Charlton gig. It's probably to this day the favourite gig I've ever been to in my life. You know, uh, who was there? There was uh, the Who. There was Little Feet. There was the Outlaws. There was Alex, Alex Harvey. Harvey Band. Alex Harvey, who, who was strutting oh, around, goose stepping. You know, Th didn't he come on dressed as Adolf Hitler, Hitler and and did I'm yeah, framed? Yeah, yeah, he came on as Hitler. I've been, I was who else was there? Uh, Streetwalkers. Streetwalkers. Oh, they were fantastic. Roger Chapman, yeah. Uh, yeah. It's the best gig. And uh, Gary, you must remember, it was pouring down of rain that day. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Absolutely. It's a, it was a mud build. Because what had happened on that gig was there was 80,000 people in that stadium. And there was only meant to be space for 50,000. 
right? So it was absolutely crammed. You could not get in because there were so many touts selling dodgy tickets. So uh, when you were inside, you couldn't get out to go for a piss, right? You couldn't get to the toilet. Well, so you couldn't go anyway, could you? So. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, if you can't go in front of one person, what are you going to do with 80,000? But all anybody did, <laughs> do you remember this, Gary? All anybody did was uh, pissed it in a bag and then oh, threw it. Right, I threw so, it. Did you, do you remember? There was yeah. piss flying everywhere. Yeah, it was and horrible, remember, wasn't it? Yeah, we get to the point where the Who come on, and you know that is the first time that they use the lasers, the laser show oh, on the laser Barbara Riley. Yeah, the Barbara Riley. So that's a ding, all that sequence of stuff. And the lasers come on, and I'm looking up in the sky, and I can see the lasers going, and I can see the the, the smoke is in the air, and the rain's coming down, and all of a sudden I can see this stuff starting to glitter. And it was like moving around. I think it's fucking this weirdest experience of my life. And what it really was, was piss. Piss <laughs> coming down. It was because people were putting it in the bag and then throwing it over their shoulders. It was pretty yeah. horrible. I remember that. I remember when The Who came on and Roger Daltrey slipped up because it was a wet stage and Pete Townsend goes, The Who on ice. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> yeah, I, 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 hang on, stay there, stay there. Stay there. What are we waiting for? He's going to the back of his room. Oh, he's, he's found an old NME. Oh, is it? No, it's a Oh, my NME. God. I've, I've got that. I remember I remember yeah. that when it kept. My mum sent me that at school. Yeah. With R Roger yeah, on the man. front from the Charlton gig. Yeah, well, it's inside the NME here, all about the rainiest day of rock, which is uh, the Charlton gig, which I think is one of the best gigs in the world. Went into Guinness Book of Records as the loudest gig ever. There's a little bit of footage of that, of backstage of that, by the way, which has always struck with me as one of the coolest bits of rock and roll footage anywhere, which is, is um, Keith, Keith Moon comes up the stairs with Ronnie, around, with Ronnie Wood's arms around him, of, of course. Yeah. And then John Entwistle comes up and, he, and it was when he was playing those beautiful black Firebird basses. And it's clearly just yeah. been polished fantastically. And he holds his bass up and combs his hair in a reflection. Oh. <laughs> oh. Oh. oh, Martin, you missed the trick there, mate. I, I like that. Yeah. Um, yeah, but that was absolutely the kind of, uh, the, I think, the gig that made me want it to, to be a rock star. Because, all right, because the story I've, you know, the narrative I've always been fed is, you know, you were once in the band and tonight, so, okay, as is the story with so many bass pairs, oh, I'll, I'll play the bass then. And so you just started playing the bass. And it, it, yeah, well, it, it, it didn't option. seem like you had it. No, but it didn't seem like there was necessarily any kind of inclination to do that before or, or any, learn no. an instrument. I mean, you know. No. no but do, do, Guy, you don't, you know about the defects. You don't know about the defects. Yeah. Come on. That's, come on. No. See, I, um, when Gary asked me, or Steve Dagger, the, the band's manager. Yeah. The maker's manager, Steve, uh, who is the loveliest man in the world. And yeah. uh, he asked me to be in the band. And so, you know, it was, I remember it was Steve Norman's 18th birthday party and we were all drinking uh, this dodgy beer that Steve had made in his airing cupboard. Not the boots, the boots kit. Yes. Not, yeah, the boots <laughs> kit. Yeah, that he had made in his airing cupboard. Gave everyone a yeast infection afterwards. <laughs> yeah, right? yeah. And Steve Dagger said to me, um, Mark, if we ever make it to uh, Top of the Pops, if we ever make it, um, you know, uh, as a proper band and we get recording contracts, I want you to be with us. And so it was kind of like, for me, it was the door opening up into a world that I had dreamt of. Because when I was roadieing for Gary, 
and for the makers it, as a young boy I was and carrying their equipment for them it was for me it was like a dream to be in that band you know I used to go to bed at night praying and dreaming that I was going to be in that band one day you know praying that something terrible was going to happen to one of them so that I could stand in <laughs> to me yeah so that I could just get into the band in some way so when Steve asked me to be in it it was like the biggest thing in my world you know it was a, a door that opened into a, a world that I wanted to be and then obviously I had to get it past Gary what did you say first were you were you up for it well I wasn't were you, you know threatened? Slightly, I think, yeah. you know, slightly threatened that I'm going to have to look after this guy and carry yeah. him around for the next few, few years. Yeah. I, I mean, I did, I did end up just teaching all the bass parts, didn't I? I stayed yeah. up one night. I did it in a day. I just want to, I just want to touch on the Defects guy because I think oh, it's yeah, fine. Defects were a punk band that my brother. Oh, formed you think? With, there was a band yeah. called Defects, and they were a punk band. Oh, you yeah, <laughs> think? <laughs> he formed it with a guy called Elgin, whose dad run the dry cleaners, and they 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 rehearsed. They rehearsed in the basement of the dry cleaners shop. I think they were like literally plugged in, plugged into the light socket, you know. And their key, their key song that they all wrote together was went something like "We are the defects," so people say. And I, I'd never to that day met who these people were who said they were the defects. <laughs> Well, that's the old Fox News one, isn't it? Some people are saying. Yeah, but you know, but you know what that band did for me? It it kind of like I learned four or five chords on a guitar, and so when by the time Gary came along and said, um, or the band came along and said, you know, Steve Dagger, right, came along and said, do you want to be in the band? Then I was ready for it because I, I was playing a little bit of guitar. So you know, I, I'm always grateful for that first. Band. So. So oh, okay, so you, so what was your first bass, and how did you learn it? Uh, first bass I had was a Shergar. A Shergold. Shergold's a missing horse. Shergar. Really. Yes. <laughs> Shergold. Do you know what? Do you know what? People are still wondering what happened to that bass. Well, is that why people always ask if you had a nose bag? <laughs> <laughs> That's quite posh. That's quite an expensive bass. I didn't know what it was. You know, it was. Uh, no. It was just, what? It, it was something you? that I inherited, I think, from someone. I'm not. I can't even remember buying it. I think it was the band sort of something, and I started yeah, using maybe. it. Um, so, so I picked up the bass, and I, um, like Gary said, he showed me how to play uh, twelve or thirteen songs that they were playing. Wow. So your rudiments were just learning learning those songs. That's yeah. I mean, that, which, that's actually the Absolutely. best way. That's that's the best. Yeah. That's I a mean, real shortcut way of learning. Playing the bass was a means to an end. You know, it wasn't um, for me to be the best bass player in the world, like yourself. You know, that you love doing this no. thing. For me, it was uh, um, a key to becoming a rock star. It was, and it was that playing the part of a rock star. It wasn't. Uh, oh, I want to be Stanley Clark or you know Guy yeah. Pratt. It was. Uh, it was. I want to be. I want to be Elvis. To be honest, that was, I, I, I mean, much I, I loved learning the instrument, playing the instrument, but basically that's, I wanted to be a rock star too. I, I didn't want to be a great yeah, musician. Yeah. That was, that was never the plan. I, yeah, yeah, that's why I had to settle for. Yeah, but, um, cool. but no, but although saying that, because I, I was saying to Gary, because I've been down a Spandau rabbit hole for the, I wasn't going to do any research for this because I thought it'd be well, basically what it is, but I couldn't help yeah. myself. I'm such an innate professional. And, um, <laughs> and I, <laughs> And I was watching your 85 NEC gig, and it's what, mm. and what I loved about that is you forget it is 
you, you say what you want, mate, but the thing is, mate, if you were in a mainstream band in the mm. 80s, it was so muso. Everyone yeah. was so muso. I mean, it's like you're, you, some of the stuff you're doing, you're halfway to Steely Dan. And your yeah. playing is great, man. Thank you. I think by the time we got to that point, like that you're talking about when we were just on just started kicking off playing those uh, stadiums and arenas uh i think all of us were playing we were so tight that I, for me that is the, my favorite point in the band uh we were so tight john keeble playing on drums was so tight yeah. it was an incredible band absolutely ready to pop the question the jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. This episode of Rock on Tours is sponsored by AG1, the daily nutrition supplement. AG1 is a comprehensive and convenient blend of over 70 vitamins, minerals, and other vital ingredients like gut-friendly bacteria, antioxidants, and much more. Just one scoop of AG1 daily has all the nutrients you need to support your mental performance, energy levels, heart health and immune system. To be honest, it's pretty vital stuff for us because when you've got a life on the road and you're short of time or you're too busy to plan and prepare healthy meals, you're getting your podcast together, you're being shouted at and it's just a nightmare. AG1 gives me all the good stuff and helps keep my energy levels where I need, ready for showtime or doing the podcast and with a nice vanilla taste. It keeps me focused, feeling good, feeling healthy with its daily dose of vitamin C and zinc. And it's so easy to use. Just one scoop a day gives me over 70 carefully selected ingredients. Simple. Trusted by Olympians, F1 drivers and the rock on tours. So if you want to replace your multivitamin and more, start with AG1. Try AG1 and a free one-year supply of vitamin D and five free AG1 travel packs with your first subscription. Go to drinkag1.com slash rockonteurs. That's drinkag1.com slash rockonteurs. Check it out. I think the thing is about Martin is he really did know how to be a pop star. That was his other thing. And, you know, we were all going into this this period of time where the visuals were going to be just as important as the music. Not that they were. I mean, look at David Bowie. Of course they were important but more so in a way in the 80s because suddenly there was MTV and cable television and, uh, you know, the, and the Americans would embrace the British, the British look. But you found your look, didn't you, Mark, in those clubs, those early clubs of Billies yeah. and Blitz. Yeah. You know, and, and, and being, being on the front cover of the face, third edition, you know. Yeah, well, I, I always thought, you know, that was... We were very lucky, you know, we were, we were a good band and we were a good-looking bunch of boys, right? Uh, which 
you know, didn't uh, work against us. Uh, but yeah, all our look came from back in the Blitz in the day, didn't it? You know, when we started out, we were part of that new wave, that new romantic uh, crest of a wave. And we were the first through, through the door. You know, we were closely followed behind by Duran Duran. And, um, but sometimes it, it does you a favor if you're second through the door, but you, but, you know, you let someone else break the wave. But yeah, yeah, I mean, the look in the early days came, came straight out of the clubs. And we, I always think we were like the Who or the Rolling Stones, where we, we weren't making these clothes up that we were wearing, you know, just, oh, I know what, let's dress, put in some fancy dress with it. You know, we weren't doing that. We were actually wearing what the kids were wearing in the clubs. So we were like the Who. But, but you um, say that, but that's, I mean, it's a, it's a tiny amount of kids in a club. It's not like the mother, it's not like... Yeah. You know, it, it's actually much oh. more sort of cliquey than that. And I've got to say, and coming out of the whole punk thing, I mean, kind of, you know, ballet slippers and kilts and everything, mate. You're like, <laughs> you're taking your life in your hands, frankly. Well, aren't you, you know, it, uh, but punk led us in nicely. You know, yeah. punk led us in nicely. It, it was just change, fashion change from being all about uh, leather and chains uh, and, and no future to dressing up in bright colours and being who you were. And being ambitious. That I think is quite an interesting thing as well. Going back to the musician thing, being such a, is that the very fact that punk was this big reset, and that, and there was this anti-musicianship thing of it, and it was mm. this you know rebellion against everything. Everything was so grandiose and involved before, yeah. and it was a way of getting rid of all of that. But what's so funny is, is how that generation of musicians actually grew up to be far more competent and and sort of you know became became actually great players the playing side of it became really really important but just in a very different way to like the prog lot but yeah but i don't think you know guy i think we, we look back in amazement at that because we've gone through so many years of people plugging into computers and being able yeah. to get everything straightened up or or you know sampled yeah. or whatever but but there was none of that in those days so no, everyone true. actually had to play and I, and i think the bands that we aspired to be you know, every bass player suddenly became wanted to be Bernard Edwards. You know, yeah, yeah, yeah. bass bass was the lead instrument. Suddenly, it was the sexiest part of the band, uh, and and so you know, you had to get your chops together where that was concerned, didn't you, Mark? I mean, John Taylor was yeah. was was also you know he was a great player, and yeah. he was. Great bass I mean, do you know, funny enough, player. Martin, because the the first time we met properly, which was in Budapest in 1984, when. Uh, Ice House and Spandau did this gig together and, and we had this very drunken night. There was a big reception at the, at the Intercontinental Hotel. And I remember the yeah, first yeah, time yeah. I had a, you know, the first time I had a chat with you and we we'd yeah. both had a few by this point. And, um, and I asked you, and you had very, at that, certainly at that point in the evening, had very strongly held opinions on bass playing, which I was interested, but, but they all seemed to be just more to do with history and everything like that. You, I remember you said, I don't think slapping is 1984. I don't think there was something else that wasn't 1984, but it was a thing that things that weren't 1984, not, <laughs> yeah. not good or bad, but they weren't 1984. And I, yeah. I remember you saying slapping's not 1984. And I remember thinking, I think it sort of is. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, listen, I, I can't defend myself if you're talking about a night after a gig at all. No. You know, um, I can imagine what went down. But we're all very, everyone was very cross because it was a mime. We thought it was a gig, but it was a mime. Do you remember people have been, it was in a big arena. People have been charged a fortune yeah. and we were miming. Well, that, that means I would have been even more drunk. 
Yeah, exactly. Mate, you know. <laughs> I, I love it. If it was nowadays and you put slapping is so is so not 2021 on Twitter, there would be culture wars. By the end of the day, Lawrence Fox would have a serious opinion about it, right? <laughs> yeah, <it's, laughs> but, but but you know, yeah, you'd need security. But you know, if we're talking about uh, some of the fun gigs that we went to, uh, me and Gary together. Yeah, yeah. Uh, then we have to talk about some of the punk days, you know, uh, Generation X and The Damned and The Jam and all of those gigs in uh, in the, the Roxy and the Vortex uh, and, and clubs like that. And I remember once going to see Generation X at the Vortex. And as I got there, I don't know if you remember this, Gal. Do you remember there was a big white Rolls Royce parked outside? One of the massive ones that the Queen uses, you know, one of right. the, I can't remember the, day, the Dame La Limo one. Yeah, yeah the yeah. Dame La Limo thing. And uh, it was parked outside. And, and I looked in the window and um, it was Keith Moon sitting there in a white fur coat, smoking a big cigar. Well, this is outside the vortex. Yeah, do you remember that? Okay, so that must be the night that Keith went in and had the big argument with Bob Elms, or was that? Am I no, Bob, no, no, no. No, that was at the market. That was at the marquee, a, a flies gig. I remember. Yeah. Oh, okay, okay, okay. So, so Keith was pretty good at turning up and seeing what was happening. Then he was that's always right. at the. That's right. Everybody, and it was Generation X. Yeah, everybody was trying to look at what was happening. And it, what did he say? He said, "I'm looking for a swimming pool to drive this thing into." Have you seen yeah. me? <laughs> Because well, I remember going to the Roxy one night and it was a band, I think it was the Plastic Raincoats, and Robert Plant was there. And I remember yeah. just being so annoyed, just thinking, but that can't be Robert Plant. And yeah, it's, and it's, yeah, it's, I remember, it I was with, I'm with you, Guy, when I saw Keith Moon in the back of this, uh, you know, Daimler limo, all I remember is thinking, uh, what's he doing here? You know, he shouldn't yeah. be here. This is our thing. Yeah. You know, uh, this belongs to us. The way we think of pop stars, you thought of those people as movie stars. Yeah. Yeah, you know yeah. I mean? it was that kind of other level of remove. Yeah, yeah. It's like when Bowie came to the Blitz. You know, I remember thinking, you know, everyone was freaking out, and I'm thinking, you shouldn't be it. Don't talk to him. Don't talk to him. This is our generation now. You yeah, know, yeah. And, uh, yeah. Which of course. But, you so know, Gary, I'm... Gary, and I, you know, we experienced everything. We we did. Uh, we went from uh, the stuff at the Roundhouse, the early prog stuff at the Roundhouse. We went into seeing Pink Floyd and uh, the Rolling Stones at the Earl's Court gigs. Do you remember those, Gary? Yeah, of course. Oh, yeah. The, 70, the 75 ones with the giant yeah, cock. Yeah, with the giant yeah, 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 yeah. Rolling Stones coming out of the Lotus Ronnie Flower. Wood's first gigs. Yeah, they were, absolutely. Yeah. And uh, we did those. Uh, and then I think after that, where do we go after that? We, we, it's kind oh, of like... Martin, did you go with Gary to see the, the pistols at the screen on the green? No, I wasn't allowed. I wasn't that, I was yeah, do you know that why? That's done. so that's so that because it's all we ever hear about on it. It's all we <laughs> ever hear about. <laughs> he didn't, and he knew that was going he didn't want you stealing his thunder. It, he went to the one after. You. you went to the it, Sid, it, it, you went to the Sid one, didn't you? No, because I was just wondering, I, I, that's such a shame because I was wondering if you two would have, because you know, that everyone's meant to have had this punk moment, aren't they? It's like yeah. kind of, you saw the pistols and then you come home and you tear all your posters off the wall. Yeah. And that's it. And you throw your flares well, in the bin. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But, but that same night that they were on, they played the screen on the green, uh, the Sex Pistols were on TV at six o'clock in the evening, tea time. And uh, oh, they were- Bill Grundy. No, it wasn't Bill Grundy. Oh, it wasn't they, Bill Grundy. It wasn't oh. a Bill Grundy gig. It was, oh, 
the guy who ran factory the guy run factory records what was his show like oh, news uh, a revolver or whatever it was called yeah uh, what's his name oh uh, uh, tony, no, no, no. tony 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 i think Wilson. if you asked me about the one gig that i wished i'd seen and it's that yeah but uh, marta i thought you went to see and not because i didn't see it but i thought you went to see the sex pistols with sid vicious the second time round at the screen of the green no, you obviously didn't. You would have remembered that. Did they actually do any uh, gigs? Yeah. Uh, yeah. He did a few in America, didn't he? Yeah, yeah but, but I mean, he played for America. Like, I mean, he couldn't. But I mean, he didn't have a strap. He couldn't really play. And it, yeah, he played <laughs> enough, didn't he? You know. Yeah. Listen, we, you know, Sid was who he was. You know, he, he wasn't about being the best bass player in the world, which he didn't need. He was he was charismatic, and uh, he gave the Pistols a look. Which, yeah, uh, had Glenn not written, had Glenn not written the songs, I think would be yeah. Really yeah. Very but, you know, he didn't story, play yeah. them as well as Glenn did. He didn't play yeah. the songs as well as Glenn did, but he still was an important part of the Sex Pistols. Well, yeah. I want to, I want to ask you yeah. some stuff about Spandau that, from your perspective, after the, we had the second album out, and mm. Chant Number One did well. I think it was, you know, whatever it was, top five or something, and then Paint Me Down came out. And it sort of just missed the top 30. And then I remember we were at an airport and She Love Like Diamond was the new single. And I think we got a call that it just got to number 40 something and then it was on its mm. way down. And I remember, obviously, from my perspective, I was terrified, you know, you know, I'd screwed it up. You know, I hadn't written the right song for, for the band. Well, I just wondered if you remember how you felt at that time. Yeah, absolutely. It was terrifying. Uh, I thought... It was the end of a journey, to be honest. And uh, I, I, I remember I felt really sorry for you because I knew that the pressure you were under as being the only songwriter and everybody was looking at you thinking, uh, it wasn't thinking, oh, we blame you for the song's rubbish. Well, it wasn't rubbish, but oh, people didn't mind. like it, right? People did, it didn't work no, on didn't the radio. Work. Let's just say it didn't work, uh, but everyone was looking at you to come up with the next thing. I don't know whether we thought there but was would be a next I, thing at that point. And hang on, this, is, I, I, this I, is your second I, album time. Are you both still living at home then? Uh, I was. Yeah, Gary no. had just left, didn't you, Gary? No, I was still living at home because I wrote so the true out. Were you sharing a room? No. Uh, at, that, at that point, no. At that no. point, no. We were in the, yeah, we'd gone from sharing the room as, ki as kids. And I think by the time we were 13, we'd moved into the second house that we had our own bedrooms at last. Yeah, yeah. No, because but, but I didn't leave, to be honest, I didn't leave home, I don't think, until I got the, the first proper paycheck after True came out, which is the third album. Because yeah. I do remember writing the, all of the True album, which is which would follow that that disaster that we had with, with the second album, yeah. which was kind of, we kind of, it was helped for us by, by, Trevor Horn remixing yeah. uh, Instinction, which which got went top ten, and there we were. Yeah. But I wrote all of the True album uh, in my bedroom, uh, uh, you know, in, when we lived at home with with mum and dad. And yeah. I remember calling you in; you would be the first person to hear it all. Uh, absolutely, it was. It's one of my biggest memories, uh, or one of my loveliest memories, is you calling me into the bedroom one day and uh, sitting down and saying, "I've got a new song to play you," and you played True on your acoustic guitar. And the hairs on the back of my neck went up and it was just like, it was, it was an amazing moment because it was just, I was so proud of you for turning out that song and writing that song. But also I knew it was a song that was going to save us, you know, put the band back together and put it back on the road and uh, make it last yeah. another album. 
Was it that bad? I mean, I, I never really re- knew there was such album, a big right? second album hiccup. I didn't really get. To... Oh, the second album was it like your bad. I can see for miles moment? What were you going to do? The right Tommy. The second album wasn't bad. It was. It was just. No, different. it wasn't bad. Yeah, yeah, it was more I can see for yards. <laughs> <laughs> it was just different, you know. Uh, I remember at the playback, the the record company playback. You know, when you go into the big studio and uh, it's played really loud on the speakers and everyone's standing around from the record company with their glasses of wine and bits of cheese, you know, and crackers. And uh, the faces were really long and on the floor and you could see it wasn't working. It was um, a difficult second side, wasn't it? That second side, we were sort of weren't sure whether to go a bit proggy. And I was going to say, yeah. this is where you, you, you were, yeah, you were trying your proggy experiment. Well, you know, I mean, I, I, I know, you, know you can hear that. You can hear that on it. You actually can hear that. Yeah, but it's yeah. the same for any band. Second... First albums are easy to write because they're the songs that you have been playing and yeah, you know, yeah. they're, they're, they're tried and tested. Um, but the second album is different. It's the first time that you've ever had any pressure on you to write songs. But was, you um, always had great unity, didn't you, for the, those first few years, didn't you? I mean, you were all kind of very much one, we, all for one and one for all. Absolutely. We're, we were always the best of mates. But, but I have to say, you know, Gary was in charge of the whole deal in my opinion, musically in charge of the whole deal. He was absolutely um, the best MD a band could have. Uh, uh, he, the, you know, he, they were his songs, but he absolutely knew how he wanted them to be. Um, and I, I think without Gary, the band would never have had any kind of success. Well, yeah, but I mean, you know, thank you for that, Mark. No, but no, I, you no, know, no. It, it's, you know, shucks, shucks. No, no, no. It's true. But, it's but, true. but, 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 but I think that can stand for everybody in the group. And I think that's what makes a group successful and special when, you know, you're really the sum of these parts, you know, that individually you wouldn't be able to go out and have the same success as you can on force. You know, we all look at the Beatles and we know that's one man to the power of four. You know, yeah. this is it, it, this this was the similar thing with us. You know, I mean, this voice and this you your you were your looks and your yeah your, your bass playing. You know, but it was <laughs> good. It was good. It was good. good. Obviously, good. it was good. We know it was good. Um, all bands need that, don't they? They they need yeah. all these characters that make it. I mean, look at the the Who or the Stones. You know, you know everybody in that band and what what their worth is. Yeah. So seeing as I know because we're we're not really getting anywhere, which is which is lovely. Yeah. Um, to forget any sort of chronology, but I do, so we need to. I do want to ask about so when the craze thing came along, because what's interesting when you because I remember back when there was that period when the face was basically Spandau Ballet monthly, right? Yeah. <laughs> and it, I mean it really was. And I remember Gary. I remember one of the first big interviews I read with you in it, and uh, I should remember you were photographed on the embankment. You were wearing a three-button suit and you're kneeling down. Basically, right. I know my mind. Cleopatra's needle. I was photographed under. Yes. Yes. And um, um, and in that interview, you said my advice to any working class kid would be to read the Profession of Violence by the Craze. (laughs) Did I? Did I say? Yes, you did. You actually did. And that and I that always stayed with me. So when I heard you were doing the Craze, I thought I wondered if that's something that you'd been pushing for all the way through because you were some weird little Craze fanboy. (laughs) <laughs> or I don't you know, or or if, um, did it genuinely just come to you like that? No, I think I know. Actually, the, the, you, I'm glad you said it because you did remind me. So, so the guys who produced the film The Craze also produced our videos. Mm. So, so right. Dominic Anciano. Dominic Anciano, right? Yeah, yeah. Pro- produced produced a lot of the big videos we did with Simon Milne directing. Mm. 
and he traveled with us to Hong Kong and I think New Orleans maybe. Um, and, and I think we were, we were sort of mentioning this, this book and he would have picked up on that. He then went after the rights, but at that stage, I think once they got the rights and they bought the rights off of Roger Daltrey, actually, yeah. In fact, I remember sitting next surprise, to Roger. Surprise, surprise. Yeah, but Roger wanted Roger wanted to play one of the Crays, I think, you know, but... but uh, Not both of them. <laughs> not both of them, no. Um, um, and I remember sitting next to Roger in a, in a, in a, a show somewhere, I can't remember where it was, a uh, band, and, uh, and he was like, you know, sort of accepting that we'd bought the rights and we were going to play the Crays, and he was kind of interested to see how it would come out. But, um, but I, I, and I think then... When, once Dominic Anciano had the rights to the craze, I think they then did think, right, we should look at the McGann brothers. And I know they got looked at as well. Oh, right, right. But it was it was something in a way, we got the wave going, if you like. We, we did begin that um, ourselves. Yeah. And then we did the picture that was on the front of the NME. Do you remember? Oh, oh, God. Oh, God. Oh, hang, on. hang on, hang on, hang on. That's not an and then, is it? That's like 1982. Yeah, yeah. Are you gonna are you gonna show us that? Even though we're audio, I know, but he's gonna lift up Penny no. Smith's picture. Penny um, Smith, Martin, is that right? Martin, are you doing some other documentary about your life that needs you to have all this material to hand? Oh, <laughs> oh you know what? No, actually, no, we were again. Doing it. get it again. I missed it. Get it again. Get it out. Get it out. Get it out. Get it so out. he's got the enemy from 1981, isn't it, Martin? Then that's you and oh, I know the connection. I we remember thought... that one. Soul Boys. Of... Yeah, I remember that. Yeah, yeah. Soul Boys of the Western right? World. Yeah. But that's but your zoot suity. That's the kind of. Yeah, but but it was I think the Chris Sullivan thing you got going on there, haven't you? Yeah, yeah. Rondo. But, but I think it was that that kind of planted the idea into people's heads early on. Oh, okay. Planted the idea into Dominic and Ray Burdis, uh oh, okay. heads, uh, and the idea kind of grew. And I remember at that point when I first heard that we were going to the film was going to be made, we were or we were talking about it was when I was in Dublin and uh, I was reading the Profession of Violence. And then I remember one morning opening up a copy of The Sun saying Gary and Martin Kemp lined up to play the Cray Twins. Now, that is, this is a long time before the film actually was made, oh. uh, five years before. So there was yeah. always a buzz that Gary and I might be in the mix to make it. We did quite a bit of research, didn't we, Mark? We, we yeah. went, I remember, you know, visit you Ronnie. You killed a few people, didn't you? Yeah. Yeah. You, we visited we visited Ronnie, but you wouldn't visit Reggie, would you? You didn't want to make well, that visit. Well, no, because after I saw Ronnie, and that was an experience in itself, wasn't it, Gary? Uh, we were sitting down but... at this table in Broadmoor talking to Ronnie Cray about murder and about who he would like to murder next and what he's going to do and, and what he thought about murder. And as, I'm, as we're talking to Ronnie, I, I'm looking over my shoulder and on one of the other tables is the Yorkshire Ripper. And so, and, and what made it even worse is that morning, Gary and I had just done <laughs> <on> Swamp Shop. <laughs> and the Yorkshire yeah, Ripper's talking to Bob Hoskins about his movie. <laughs> no, no, no. <laughs> <laughs> but it was just bizarre, yeah. you know. It was bizarre. He'd just done Tiswas. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> we shouldn't, we shouldn't. We sorry, shouldn't sorry, no, sorry. The no. whole thing was just bizarre. Uh, but, and, you know, and I think what... What gave us, um, what, why that film was so good is that all of that information and all of that background work was out there. And in so kind of like when Tom Hardy made his Cray Twin movie, it wasn't, it was gone. 
you know, they were too yeah, late. Yeah. Martin, and I just want to get to this bit. Yeah. Why you why you decided not to meet Ron, R- Reggie? Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. It's just that when I met Ronnie, I just felt that I wasn't getting what I needed. You know, I, I sat down with Ronnie and no matter all the stories that he was telling us, I just felt that he was the old version of what we wanted. You know, we wanted to capture the Cray Twins at their height you know, when they were charismatic young men. And I think for me, that was happening in my head. Um, yeah. Sitting down, talking to Ronnie as a real person, even though all the information and all the stories he had, I could have got that from a book. It wasn't the person that I wanted to play. And I was I fright- think- after that, I was frightened of meeting Reggie because he would ruin that idea that I had in my head of who he was. Uh, and I kind of like had enough background to who they were as people and where they'd come from, because their lives, in, in actual fact, weren't that different, uh, you know, family-wise, as mine and Gary's. Yeah. You know, we were the same kind of people, grew up in small council houses with outside toilets and no baths, and then go to the, to the uh, bar, local baths to, you know, get clean. So they, we weren't that different as people. Well, actually, what's in you say that? Because what's inter- another interesting thing, I think, because the film, which is magnificent, right, which is a fantastic, mm. absolutely awesome, certainly not Very what cool. I was expecting when I saw it. I was so, you know, it was, I was blown away. And it was because what's, because you both seem to have grown up with very, very strong women. And, and that's what that film really captured was with those, yeah. was, was it was the women, you know, it was these incredibly strong women who. Uh. Well, it was, that film was all based around the women, you know. Yes. I think what, why that film worked for me is that all, if you listen to the script that Philip Ridley wrote, all of the women's parts are quite theatrical, you know. And so you've got in one hand, you've got this kind of like piece that should almost be on a, a, a theatre stage going on. Yeah. And then there's Gary and myself that are playing it uh, uh, in reality, playing it as real life people. Which um, makes us weird. If you see what I mean. Yeah. Yeah. And the two things kind of just sat nicely together. Yeah. And that's why it works. What's quite funny, actually, was going back is the look of it. Because you always think when you're making a period film, you always think, you know, you go for the period, but you're actually always going to be in the period you're in. So you guys actually look fantastically 80s. You've got enormous coats. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. I think, you know, Philip really wanted to be heightened. He wanted to be really heightened anyway. You know, yeah, like the, yeah. this is... The, yeah, it is quite cartoony almost, you know. Jet black hair. Yeah. You know, when I met uh, Quentin Tarantino uh, a couple of years later in LA, and after he'd done Reservoir Dogs, he said to me that, his the Reservoir Dogs' entire look was based on the craze. That he gave a VHS copy to everyone on the production and said, "I want the film to look like this," and that's why they're wearing those suits and ties. When you make a movie, you don't just want to tell the story. You know, it's kind of like you have to tell the story as if you're sitting at a dinner table where you're going to entertain the people around you, and and sometimes you have to exaggerate and oops, shut up. <laughs> that's all kicking off. Uh, Martin, I, I don't know you all that well, but I've known you for a very, very long time, right? And you've always struck me, and I know anyone I know who knows you, as you're a very kind, gentle man, right? Oh, you know, you, you are, okay? And, but yet you, your whole acting association and all the social, it's all, it's villains, murderers, hard men, well, gangs. Well, yeah, I mean, that comes from the craze, you know? Yeah. Uh, uh, it comes from the craze, then going on to playing that character in the EastEnders called Steve Owen. Um, but, you know, in this country, we, we are prone to pigeonholing people. Uh, yeah. I don't blame people for that. Uh, but if a casting director comes along and says, 
we need a you know good looking gangster who can we get oh i know we get that one who's done it before a comparison i said james gandolfini right with the mm. sopranos and he and again anyone who knew him would just say he was the kindest sweetest most lovely man and the thing is and he had this kind you you could see it in his eyes you could see the kindness mm. there which is why you always root for tony soprano yes and i tell you exactly so what i mean is. because he couldn't yeah come on I, I will tell you exactly what it is and it's a big thing that i use a lot when i act with any character uh it's vulnerability and uh, I think that's one of the most important things that you can have as an actor, because what vulnerability is, is it happens inside your head. Um, when, when you act on stage, I always feel that acting stops, Gary might disagree with me on this, acting stops in front of your eyes um, and you're projecting. Uh, when you act on TV or film, it happens inside your head. And it happens, uh, you project from inside your head, behind your eyes. And if you can grab on the vulnerability, that's a really attractive thing. So, and if you put the two together, it's a real good juxtaposition for the gangster to have a vulnerability. And then more than when he goes out and does these horrific things, the more it hurts you as a person because I, you've, I, you've been drawn to him. I think, uh, I think Martin's right, you know, and you're right. Yeah, he is a kind man. Right. And, and, and when we did the craze, no one questioned which part should be played by whom. So mm. Martin was always going to be Reggie, you know, and I was always going to be the psychopath, right? Because yeah. <laughs> Martin's got that lovely sense of vulnerability. And you were kind of root for Reggie a bit out of the two. Yeah, yeah, Where, yeah. You know, maybe I'm perceived a little bit more cold hearted. I don't know the, you know, <laughs> the, the, the driving force. But um, but I think that that casting was kind of done. Mark, we have to talk a bit about that period for you in the late 90s when you know you were yeah, it was ill the, it was the mid 90s wasn't it when you had your tumor uh 95 yeah like, yeah 95. how did you and how did that become apparent i mean was it uh, it was uh it was kind of like a, a car crash you know when i look back at it um i was in canada and i was filming this thing called the outer limits you know the old 1960s thing, yeah, yeah, yeah. The remake of it and i was playing this old professor that had invented <coughs> this pill for everlasting life. And, you know, because it's a sci-fi horror, it all goes wrong and he starts to deteriorate, to deteriorate at a much quicker pace. So yeah. anyway, I'm this kind of like 200 year old man and I have to be made up in, a, in the chair. And as they're pulling on the bald cap, the whole room goes quiet. And all you can see standing up from the back of my head is this big lump. And um, I'd noticed it, but it had grown really quick over the last couple of weeks. And what that lump was, was a calcium lump that was growing at a rate of knots to protect what was going wrong underneath the skull. And underneath the skull, there was a tumour about the size of um, a grapefruit that had just been squashed because it was finding any space it could get to. And so in the end, there was no space left and it started to grow up into the skull. And so as soon as it started to do that, it was a big old lump. And, but listen, that, uh, when I look back at it, it's the luckiest thing that ever happened to me in my life. Because when they took me into MRI me and have a look at it, they found a second one that was growing inside. And that was, but that one was at the top of my spine and that one oh, would have killed God. me. So that's the, it's the luckiest thing that ever happened. You know, I, it was like this big signpost on the top of my head saying, go and check inside. 
but it was yeah. a car crash. You know, I went from one day being the healthiest and fittest I'd ever been in my life, working nonstop out in Hollywood, doing the whole thing, and then uh, come crashing down uh, uh, with two brain tumors and so on. Were you actually kind of? Did you go apart mentally? And I mean, you know, in terms um, no, of actual illness or no, everything happened so quick. Yeah. You know, I was diagnosed with two brain tumors. The, the very next day I was being operated on 10 hours inside having the big one removed. And then after I had the big one removed, which country I, was that? Was that back here? Was that I, still in it was here? Yeah, I flew back uh, to do it. And uh, after I had the big one removed, I had to wait, I think, two and a half years before I could attack the second one inside. And the second one was attacked by radiation therapy, stereotactic radiation, uh, lasers really right. and so they killed the second one off and touch wood it's never come back you know so but it was a period of about four years oh where, that long yeah yeah the, four years from the beginning to the end where i was i was in a mess i mean I, not only was i really depressed and find it hard to get through uh, because my life had come crashing down you know um but i think it affected gary and my mum and dad in the same sort of way, you know? And in some ways, I think it affects the people around you far more than it affects you as a person because you're in the middle of it. You know, you, you, I, all I could see is trying to work my way out of it. But yeah. it, was, it was just so difficult watching Gary and my mum and dad coming to the hospital. And uh, all I remember is Gary coming in, he says, and Gary goes to me, uh, don't eat too many of those bounties because you get fat. It's <laughs> the last fucking thing I was worried about. I remember, I remember they removed the top of his skull. So yeah. this is not really our usual rock on territory, but oh, it, no. it's 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 interesting. And they sent that off, and they were going to make a titanium one to put back on yeah, the top right. in another operation. And you came out of hospital, and they just literally put the skin flaps. Sorry if anyone's having breakfast yeah. over the top of your head. And you're wearing a baseball cap, and no skull. And we yeah. went and had we went and had a, we went and had a curry in uh, in in in, uh, the, in that place up in Highgate, Indian. And um, I remember the guy coming along behind you, you and, and he nearly tripped with all this curry. And I just had this vision <laughs> that it was going to go into your head. Well, I'll, but, I'll tell you something else. Right, a couple of days after that, I went for a walk with my dog Emma. Remember Emma, the Doberman, and mm -hmm. we took her over the woods. And there was this woman walking in front of me and she picked up this big log, chucks it for her dog, right? It goes flying backwards, hits me on the head. Oh my like, God. Like my head was attracting everything. Like <laughs> when would that ever happen? And yes. then it hit me on my nose. Typical, that's typical that, isn't it? Yeah. You have your skull I'm, taken off and well, you because, know. Because I had no skull, what was happening? All this fluid was building up inside my head. And every time I turned the corner, all I could hear was I was yeah. like this weird gyroscope. I'm just trying to think of any other time in my life I'm ever going to hear anyone say, because I had no skull. Yeah. <laughs> uh, well, it, it was the old days, you know. It took about three weeks for them to make this titanium plate. You know, now, thank God, they don't have to wait. That's right. He spent most of the 80s out of his skull anyway, guys. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, and, uh, so, so, what, so you, but have, is there a plate inside or is it just... Or... No, 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 all this here, this chunk here, about that big, that's a metal plate. In fact, it's been there so long now, some of it's come loose. So so when uh, I go jogging, all I can hear is it going, tick, 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 tick. Oh my God. 
But listen, I always, I will, I will tell you something. You know, it's, um, it's. I always look at that period in my life and what happened to me as the luckiest thing that ever happened to me. Uh, it, I think it also. I think what it did for me was it turned me into a man from a boy. You know, I'd grown up as a boy in Spandau Ballet, um, and life was just a laugh. You know, and I think that was the first time that I ever realised that life's got more to it than um, than right. just uh, an, an ever rising graph. You know, that goes up and up and up. Uh, life doesn't have a, a crescendo. You know, like a, like a good rock song does. Uh, it, it goes up and down. Mark, do you miss Spandau Ballet? Uh, yeah, sometimes. Yeah, I miss the camaraderie. I so, said, you know, when I miss them, I miss it most was uh, there's two things I miss about it. One is volume because you never re you get a, become addicted to volume. You don't hear music that loud. The power uh, of, of making it loud on stage. Yeah. Do you know what? This is something I've noticed whenever whenever I've worked with Gary is you always talk about because I've never played in a band who had side fills. Which is yeah. basically huge, great speakers at the side of the yeah. stage playing. I've never, I've never known that, and apparently that's obviously what Spandau always had. Yeah, like yeah, we raging like You're mad. You're mad. Yeah. Oh, we were like the Who. We wanted it as loud as possible. Yeah. We wanted to be as loud as possible. Uh, we wanted to be rock and roll, didn't we, yeah, Gary? You know, that's what we were so, aiming at. We wanted. So, we saw ourselves as a rock band. So you missed the volume, but yeah, I, I guess more the volume, but also I miss the camaraderie, especially. If I'm working, if I'm making a film or I'm doing something like that, that like that, and it's me out there on my own, uh, meeting new people, then uh, I miss the camaraderie and I miss my mates. Um, but don't you find that thing when you're, I mean, it's, you know, because I've worked with lots of different bands and been in various other sort of yeah. setups, but there is that sort of built in. I know what you mean. It's not the same, but the whole thing is that 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 unit of that film you work, you'll find your people and that becomes a family for the time that you're working. Yeah. Incredibly yeah. tight. And you're all going to be mates forever. And of course you go and that's all gone. Yeah, I always look at it like it's called transient friendships. You know, yeah. it's a, you make the best best mates you can ever. You know, all you you exactly. swear yeah. you're going to stay in touch. Yeah, and then by the yeah. time you move on a few weeks later, you're swearing you're going to stay in touch to the next yeah. bunch. And it's like that, but yeah. like, that's what life is like inside yeah. this. Well, that's how that's that's how you make those things work, isn't it? You, you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think what it is is you know you're living this heightened reality at a time before you have responsibility of children mm. you know so you could put the 24 7 into this yeah. into this world that is just a fantasy in a way so yeah what you miss is a bit of that like everybody no matter what job you've ever had misses their youth misses their freedom misses that well, the simplicity the simplicity just, yeah. and, and 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 i think you know you might miss being able to Pretend that still exists, if you like. Um, but you might also miss other people who you experience that with, who are the only other people that can you you can uh, talk to you about shared experience, shared experiences. But there's certain stories that Gary and I share that we can only talk to each other about. Or, we, you know, there's only five people in the world, which is Spandau Ballet, that yeah. I can tell certain stories to and remind them of the stories and they can remind me of them, you know, because they're our secret. But uh, but the uh, weirdness is, Mark, if you went to do a job age 20 uh, and you walked into an office and there were four other people in the room and they said, right, these are your workmates. Um, oh, by the way, you're going to spend the rest of your life working with these guys. You know, <laughs> yeah. It's weird, whatever way you look at it. And when people get yeah. sort of upset about the fact that you can't spend the rest of your life working with those guys, 
They've got to understand yeah. how difficult that is, that everyone's grown and changed and been di- yeah. become different well, When you're young, you want to be in a gang, you know? Yeah, of course you that, do. And, that's, that's, and it's once you've got your own family, you know, then that gets harder. Yeah. One thing, I mean, okay. there's certain times, there's certain times, like Gary says, you know, I still look at those times as the best times of my life. I mean, what an incredible, incredible way to grow up. You know, I was 17 years old when I first yeah. joined the band. 18, on my 18th birthday, we signed a record contract with Chrysalis Records. Um, what an incredible way to grow up. Flying around the world on little Learjets and, and you know, being in this rock band, playing stadiums and, and arenas. I mean, it's just, when I look back, it's, it's just, I've literally had, I literally had a life that I would only dream of. You played on on um, Gary's album, on in solo, on this song "Waiting yeah. for the Band," which I've got to because I've yeah. got to say when I was down in the studio working on, and it's quite funny because Gary apologised to me for having you play on it, and I said, "Well, of course you, he's playing on it." But when no. I first had, no, he's joking. When I well, no, because like, because you know, guys, obviously, you know, I play in a band with Guy, you know, and he's no, no, but the reason is, but what, what I love, and because that I actually cried when I first heard that song because it's so yeah, and it so absolutely had to be because I. It, that thing wait because I was immediately transported and I had a picture of and I remember that bit when you go around the side of the Hammersmith Odeon and there's that little car park bit at the back and you can see up into the dressing rooms and there's those little exactly. windows and, I, and that's exactly yeah. what you did when you got to the gig before you went in you ran around the Absolutely. back sometimes there was a security guy there sometimes there wasn't and you could get up and you could look in the dressing rooms and that and that song just took me there to, to be oh, man. there absolutely and that's what you know made me cry and that's why I I absolutely, that's why it's so great that you're on that song because uh, no, i'm absolutely you with you on that uh, uh yeah. i see i saw pictures but when gary first played me in solo i was absolutely blown away yeah, in fact is, it was it a huge part of me that was in some way not jealous but in some way just there was part of me that wished it was a Spandau Ballet record that, that we were all celebrating together yeah. uh, and being on and taking out on the road because it was so great. <laughs> um, but Thank listen, you. I'm proud of Gary so much. I mean, he's, a, he's one of the best songwriters the country's ever had. Uh, hey, he deserves yeah. all the success that he has. But the, the In Solo record is absolutely brilliant from beginning oh, my, to my, thank, thank you. Uh, I, I do want to say that the you know, the reason you had to play on on waiting for the band was it was about all of those moments yeah, like yeah. we talked about earlier That's in this what podcast. I said. Yeah, it, it yeah. absolutely. One hundred percent. You were Sorry, that guy. I, I, I probably said the wrong thing. I you said exactly the right thing, and I do. You know, I'm glad you reminded me of that. You know, not reminded me. You you agreed with me about that running around the back of the Hammersmith Odeon and looking up there. Yeah, but you but know, you were yeah, the, you know you and I found music together Sorry, didn't we? That, we found it together that whole uh, idea of um, waiting for the band you know that's about all the stuff that we've been talking about earlier is going for those going to those gigs and uh, going to see the who and going to see uh, all those early punk gigs uh, and um, literally standing in front of the stage and waiting for the band and that whole it's not just that waiting for the band at that moment but those incredible lovely moments when you've got that ticket in your hand and you're going to, you, you know, it's that evening and you're getting dressed up and going to the gig. Mm-hmm. Uh, that excitement that you have, getting to, getting in front of the Hammersmith Odeon and seeing that name of the band on that classic, you know, yeah. sign yeah, yeah, that yeah. side. And, I think and what, then what that's... that whole experience, that band experience that you have. And I, and I think that song, Waiting for the Band, just sums it up. And yeah. also, it's about the fact that, you know, it's still in us. I think we all still want that to yeah. happen. We're all still waiting for that person to come along. Mark, I just want to just finish with talking about 
how important family is to you because you know obviously you know we I can't imagine doing what I've done over the years without you because you're a little bit of home that always yeah. came with me when I was away when I was scared when I was feeling um distant from from yeah well vice you know, versa Harry. and and you know obviously we've worked together in many other projects including the comedy thing we did last year which I which I absolutely loved and can't wait to do again but, yeah, but and guy of course was in that yes yeah, so I'm not a walk on and um but now of now of course you're you're now working with your son and and, uh, and yeah. doing this regular chat show every week i mean it's it's yeah. it's it's so important to you that and you don't you don't sh shy away from it do you oh it's... no absolutely i celebrate it you know absolutely celebrate in um, my family um because you know i think I would, it goes back for me to those days when we were in spandau ballet do you remember and it's almost like you mustn't mention the fact your girlfriend you know keep it quiet you know don't let other girls know that you've got a girlfriend so i think we grew, we went through that and we experienced that together and um so now that you know i'm 60 this year right and uh i've just got the most wonderful family that i'm i'm absolutely so proud of you know both harley and shirley shirley's out there right writing her second book this year that's coming out um harley's running a production company uh, on our own. Because hang on, because Wham, um, Wham married Spandau, didn't they? <laughs> That's yeah, what happened. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, that's yeah, a smash hit dream. Boy, and my boy, Roman, is absolutely smashing it. Mark, thank you so much yeah. for coming on. Not at all. My absolute pleasure. Oh, pleasure. So lovely, so lovely, Martin. Really lovely speaking. Yeah, my absolute pleasure. Really enjoyed it. What was nice about that? Well, apart from it was just great fun to talk to Martin. Um, lovely man. Always, always love that man. Gary, I, I felt like you were maybe getting to ask him things that you would not necessarily ask him in real life. Uh, yeah, you know, I did. I, I think I did. Yeah, I, I, I took on my sort of uh, rock on head and uh, and dug a little deeper. Um, yeah, I think I, I, I probably have not asked those questions before of Martin and. Uh, it was a it was a strange one to do for me as well because some of the things he said were, were quite moving and quite um, hurtful. <laughs> yeah. No, no. But um, no, I thought you handled it really well, guy. I thought you uh, MD'd the situation nicely. Well, it was interesting because there's no way to know what the dynamic's going to be in something like that. So it was, yeah, no, it was a delight, a delight, you know. And I, I, I did like that thing about how, you know, the boat, I think it's, it's absolutely true that, you know, these two brothers, if you cut them, they bleed showbiz. <laughs> it's true. <laughs> it's true. Listen, thanks for listening to that um, sort of special one, really. Um, yeah. And um, we will be back next week with some other great talent that uh, we will we'll surprise you with. And ourselves, even perhaps. Yes, and until then, it's it's good night from me, and it's good night from them. For tickets to see Gary Kemp in conversation with Martin Kemp talking about the new album in solo and get a copy signed by Gary, go to Rough Trade East in London on August second at six pm. To find out more and to get tickets, go to dice.fm. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com.